I too extend warm Christian greetings to you today in the name of our loving Lord. The Bible says that there is joy in the presence of the angels when a sinner comes home. And I can assure you there has been joy in our household as well in the past week with Lucas's decision to accept Christ into his heart. But isn't that a fascinating thought that all heaven celebrates when a person chooses Christ? It, it stirs up heaven in a matter of celebration. How beautiful, how powerful. Okay, I am beginning to prepare a few messages for an assignment uh, that is coming up uh, here early summer, and uh, believe it or not, summer is just around the corner, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it today, but uh, I'm trying to, to start early and make some preparation, and so as I prepare some of these messages, I, I hope to share some of them with you over the next few months. But the titles that were given to me are in the form of questions. Who am I? What is right and wrong? Why am I here? And where am I going? Sounds like a, a questionable youth conference, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it sounds like a very good theme to look at. And so this morning we're going to consider the subject, the question of who am I? Who am I? It's a message that speaks about identity. Our identity as a believer. I wonder if you've ever had that question before. Have you ever asked yourself, or maybe you've asked someone else, uh, who am I anyway? Who am I? Well, it goes without saying that the world that we live in has a messed up sense of identity. Uh, you don't have to go far to notice that. Uh, from, from the pink and purple and green and blue hair <laughs> to an assortment of rings and studs and other hardware inserted on the body to the homosexual movement to the list could go on and on. You fill in the blanks. But it's obvious that our world has a very messed up sense of identity. You know, people are constantly seeking to define who they are in any way they can. Who am I? And people long to be noticed. People crave attention. They are desperate to fit in. They're trying to find their place. They just, they just want someone to notice them, to love them. They want to be heard. And so people go to extreme lengths, to ridiculous lengths, to try to achieve that. But I would note that the desire to find a place of acceptance and purpose in life is not just found in the people out there somewhere. No. But if we are honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we want that as well. We want to be accepted. We want to fit in. 
in a sense. We want some meaning and purpose in life. And so we may not go to ridiculous, ridiculous or extreme lengths as some people do, but often we feel the pressure uh, to define ourselves through other things. Maybe it's through our jobs. We want to find some identity in our job. Or maybe it's in our financial status. Or maybe it's in our vehicle that we drive. Or maybe it's in our successes in life. Or our group of friends. It might be in our grades at school. We want to define ourselves as someone who who makes the best grades. That's who I am. It might be in our clothes. It might be in our appearance. This is who I am. It might be what other people say about us. That's important to us. It's about a sense of identity, finding our place. This is who we are. But I I want us to ponder what happens then, what happens to our identity when we lose our job or when we have a financial failure or when our group of friends that loved us so much doesn't like us anymore or when we can't find that right pair of jeans that makes us just fit in, or when we get a few more pimples, or you fill in the blank. What happens to our sense of identity then? Then what? <laughs> and, and you understand what I'm saying. All of a sudden, that very foundation of who I am is shaken, and we find ourselves scrambling for another means of acceptance because what I, was, what I was finding identity in, what I was finding as my safe place is no longer there. Now what? I need to find another place of acceptance. You see, every time the circumstances change, then our identity changes too. And dear people, let me just say that When we place our identity in external things, our life will continually be unstable. It will continually be unstable. And we may receive an overwhelming amount of messages telling us that this is how we really find our place in this world. This is where it's at. But I ask you this morning, what would it look like to base our identity on the way God sees us? What would it look like to base our identity, for you to base your identity, not on what the world says, but on what God says? What would that look like? You see, we can either let the world tell us who we are, or we can let the Word Tell us who we are. It's your choice. (laughs) Which do you choose? Who will you believe? Let me challenge you with this quote. Christian selfhood 
is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he has in store for us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is, the, our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. I think that's powerful. You see, it's really not about me. No, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about exalting him. 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so we truly find identity, and fulfillment, and, well, we find purpose and meaning in life when we follow God's pattern for life. Matthew five sixteen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and honor you? Absolutely not. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's about glorifying God. And so let's look this morning at what the Bible has to say about our identity. Now you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Point 1 is, I am God's creation. I am God's creation. A a very large part of the identity crisis is a poor self-image. It's a very critical view of oneself. Oh, but, but I don't, but I'm not as pretty or as handsome as they are. Oh, but, but I, I just can't seem to, to get to that desired weight. Or, but I just, when I, you know, and, and, we get into all kinds of problems and struggles in life when we begin to compare ourselves with those around us. And and the Bible clearly says that those who do that are not wise. But we are, it seems we are so quick to buy into the world standard of beauty and knowledge and rather hesitant sometimes to fully believe the simple truth of Scripture. We see pictures, we see people out in the world, and we say, if I could just look like that, (laughs) I would be so happy. What a lie. How deceiving. I say, we are so quick to buy into the world standard of beauty and knowledge, and sometimes rather hesitant to just believe the simple truth of Scripture. And so we look at ourselves in the mirror sometimes, and we go, (laughs) yuck, (laughs) what was God thinking? What was God thinking? Well, let's see what God was thinking. Genesis chapter 1, 
verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. In chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, the scripture says here that we are created in the image of God. Man has been created in the image of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be created in God's image? Well, it speaks of having a likeness. A likeness similar to God that the, that the rest of creation does not have. And no, it, it's not that we are exactly like God. I mean, God is not a person in the sense that we are a person. No, the scripture says that God is a spirit. And yet we do resemble God in various ways. Well, we, we have a mind. We have the, the power to reason. We have the, the power of choice. We have feeling. On and on. We do resemble God in some ways. And because of this image of God that is in man, we are able to communicate with God in ways that None of creation is able to do. How wonderful. We have a special communication with God because of this image of God that is within us. And so the scripture says we are created in the image of God. I also note that God made us very good. Now throughout the first chapter of Genesis, we have thing after thing after thing that God created. And God would look back after he created it and he said, that's very good. Very good. We are well-made people. (laughs) Now, if God says that something is very good, if God says that you are created in the image of God and you are made very good, who are you to say, I don't like myself. I don't like how I'm made. Implying that, God, you must have messed up on me. I'm an, maybe I'm an accident. Maybe, I, maybe you feel like a second sometimes. You know, there at the, at the bakery, we have flops sometimes. God doesn't make flops. <laughs> never has and never will. Everything that God makes is Very good. It pleases him well. And so, to each of you and to myself, God has made each of us with much purpose, with great intention. We are exactly how he wants us to be, made very good in the image of God. The Apostle Paul says that we are the workmanship of God. We are the workmanship of God. 
Now turn to Genesis 139. This is a beautiful passage that talks about God creating us. Did I say Psalm 139? Okay. Did I say Genesis 139? You won't find it. Psalm 139. It's funny how all of a sudden something rings in your head that that didn't sound right. But let's look at Psalm 139 and note verses 13 through 18. Look at what God says here about creating mankind. Psalm 139, 18, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Reminds me of what the prophet Jeremiah wrote. God was speaking to him. And God says, you know, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And and just once again in these verses here in Psalm 139, what a beautiful description of the handiwork of the workmanship of God in creating human beings. So purposeful, so full of meaning, so full of life. It speaks of a great creator that is in complete control Of what he is doing. Nothing is happening by chance. Not at all. And we are a part of God's plan. From the beginning. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says. But now O Lord. Thou art our father. We are the clay. Thou are potter. And we are all the work of thy hands. Lord, you are the creator, I am the created. We are simply the handiwork of your hands. I believe that knowing and believing that I am God's creation helps me then to have a proper view of myself. It does. When I understand that God created me, He created me with purpose, with care, with beauty. I'm I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It then helps me to have confidence in who I am and how I look. No, I'm not an accident. I'm not a second. But I'm created by Almighty God.
That's beautiful. Secondly, then, finding identity in our life. The Bible says, I am God's possession. I am God's possession. I am a child of God. God has chosen me to be a part of his family. How beautiful. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And this is one of the passages in scripture that speaks most beautifully about our identity in Christ. And we won't read all the verses, but verses 3 through 6 in Ephesians 1. You want to know who you are as a Christian? Who am I? Well, just read Ephesians chapter 1. And you cannot leave feeling depressed if you read it with an honest and open heart. God has chosen me to be a part of his family. I am his possession. Once again, thou, Lord, you are the father. You are the father. I am the child. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Okay, that's sort of like the introduction. Get ready. It's coming now, okay? First of all, he just says, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly things, okay? Now, and then the list begins. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that sounds like, that verse in Jeremiah. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise and the glory of his grace. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now that's just part of it. We'll stop there though. But, but we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ, okay? And then he says, we are chosen. God has chosen us. He has adopted us into the family of God. He has made us accepted. We are accepted. No, we're not held at arm's length. No, we're not... We're not just simply accepted because, oh well, you're the last one standing. Come on. It kind of reminds me of, of the way we choose teams at school sometimes or other places as well. I always feel sorry for that last person standing <laughs> because you know what? They're not really chosen. They're just the last one. And so, all right, you're on my team. <laughs> now, little boys and girls, with that said, don't let it bother you. Ask God for strength in those times of need. <laughs> it does help us grow. But perhaps there would be other ways to choose teams. I, I choose one, and I choose one, and I choose one, and I choose one, and okay, Billy's left. All right, Billy, you're on my team. No, that's not how it is with God. Never, never. We are always first <laughs> in God's kingdom. We're not the last one standing, and so he just takes us on. But I say being chosen brings a sense of belonging to our life. 
Being chosen brings a sense of security. It makes us feel loved. It makes us feel needed. It brings purpose to life. It really does. I'm chosen. Someone wants me. Someone needs me. It brings meaning to life. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed or lavished upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. What love that we should be a part of the family of God. We're children. It's like, it's like God is saying, welcome to the family. Come on in. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we consider this thing of, I am God's possession. What a blessing it truly is. But along with that, there comes a sense of responsibility. A sense of responsibility. I'd like to note 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Now, these verses are in the context, in the context of sexual immorality. And Paul was aware that the church at Corinth was dealing with some of that. And so we read verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Which are God's. The Apostle Paul was saying, look, how dare you? How dare you? Those of you who call yourselves Christians, believers, how dare you give your body to the flesh like that? How dare you indulge in immorality like that? Do you not know? Do you not know that you are not your own? You are serving another. You have been bought with a lot of money? No, no. In fact, Peter writes that we have not been bought with money. We have not been bought with gold or silver, but we have been bought with some, th- something much, much more valuable than that. He says, we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Christ died. Christ gave his own life on our behalf for us. And then we go recklessly, carelessly, give it to another in that way. And, and Paul, as, as if with disgust, he says, what? What? can't believe you would do that. And yet, and yet it happens. And yet it happens. But he reminds us that because we are not our own, because we have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, we are to glorify God with our body, not self. We are not to feed the flesh, but we are to glorify God through our body and through our spirit, which are God's. 
we are God's possession. Perhaps I've used this little story here before. That's okay, I'll use it again. It's a blessing to me when I think about it. But the story is told of a young boy who lived by a New England seaport. And he loved to watch the boats coming in and out of that seaport as they were out during the day catching fish and they were coming back in and with their load of fish and back and forth. He loved to watch that. And one day, he decided that he was going to build a sailboat all for himself, a little sailboat. And so he worked on it for weeks, tweaked it and made sure it was just right, got the details just right. He loved his little sailboat. And finally the big day arrived that that little sailboat was completed. And he went out to the wharf, down to the water, to sail his new little treasure, his little sailboat. And as he happily observed his little sailboat sailing along there, along the shore, all of a sudden the wind changed directions and swept his little sailboat out to sea. And you can imagine the disappointment of that little boy. Oh no, there was nothing he could do. There goes his sailboat. He had worked so hard, spent so much time and effort building his little sailboat. And now it was gone. Sadly, he went back home, not knowing if he'd ever see it again. Well, one day, as he was walking through the market there in town, he walked by this one store, and there in the window was his sailboat. Wow, there was his sailboat. So he rushed inside, and, and he found the owner of the store. He said, sir, he said, that sailboat in the front, that, that's my sailboat. And the owner just laughed. No, no, it's not your sailboat. Someone else brought that. It's, it's no, 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 sir. And he, he explained him, no, 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 he, the, the owner wouldn't hear it. And he said, but how can I have that sailboat? And the owner said, well, you can buy it. It's for sale. You can buy it for $2. The boy ran back home. And uh, after begging his mother for a few dollars, he went back to the store, handed the $2, and bought his sailboat. And as the boy was leaving the store, the story goes that he looked at his little boat and he said, oh, little boat, you are twice mine. You're mine because I made you, and now you're mine because I bought you. Cute little story. And yet there's a, a beautiful picture there of what God has done for us through Jesus. You're twice mine. <laughs> You're mine because I created you, and now you're mine because I bought you. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot or blemish. And so, I am God's possession. Isaiah 43, verse 1 says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. <laughs> thou art mine. A picture of, of God's love. 
for his people. I believe that knowing and believing that I am God's possession brings purpose and brings meaning to my life. Thirdly then, we're thinking about finding identity in life. What does the Bible say about our identity? I am God's temple. And this fits in very closely to where we just came from in 1 Corinthians 6. And it's a similar passage. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I am God's temple. You see, understanding that my body is the dwelling place of God helps me to live carefully and responsibly. Understanding that my body is the dwelling place of God helps me to live carefully and responsibly. Now, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we'd like to start reading at verse 14. I just note the context right prior to this. Once again, the Apostle Paul is aware of immorality, of impurity in the church at Corinth. And he's coming to them with that on his mind. And he also understands that this may not be received well. That this may make them mad or it might turn them off. Because he knows they're sort of, these are hard words perhaps. And so I note what he says in verses 11, 12, and 13. I read this in the NIV to make it a bit clearer. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. He says, we've opened ours wide to you. Now I've got some hard words for you, but I, I just ask you to open yours as well. And then we read verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Okay, so pause for a moment. He gives a list, a series, he gives a series of questions as he's prepping (laughs) to speak some words to them. And I find it interesting how he's doing that. He's asking them questions, which is preparing them. In a sense, in a sense, they will end up convicting themselves. Because each of these questions, the answer is obvious. You can see it. You know, you know how it is in our lives when there's something in our life that's not right. Um, how it can be hard to see that in our own lives? Now, others seem to be able to see it easier. But it's often difficult for us to see it ourselves. And so, in a sense, Paul is prepping the people here with these questions to help them see it more clearly. And like I said, there's an obvious answer to each of these questions. What fellowship 
hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Well, none. What communion hath light with darkness? No communion at all. It's, it's, a, it's a very big difference there, you could say. And so on and so forth. He keeps going down. It's an obvious answer. And then he says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And the people would be quick to say, Well, no. No agreement at all. There shouldn't be, temp- there shouldn't be idols in the temple of God. And then he drops the bomb. He says, Ye are the temple of the living God, and there is sin in your life. There's idols in your life. Do you see it now? Do you see it now? Let's keep reading here. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He makes it very clear. If you think that God and sin can dwell together in the same body, in the same temple, think again. Think again. For ye are the temple of the living God. And so we note here three things. First of all, the reality of the temple That is within us. We are the temple. God's dwelling place is not out there somewhere. It's not in this building as such. It's in the people that are dwelling in it. That's reality. And then we note the result. The result of that is found in verses 17 and 18. The result is that I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. Welcome to the family of God. And then we also note the responsibility. That is an absolute. In order for that to happen, you need to clean up. You need to clean up. God's not going to dwell in a life that is practicing sin. No. But he says... Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Clean up. And so, dear people, along with the name Christian comes a sobering responsibility. We're talking about identity. But our name identifies us. Our name identifies us. You see, we are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. When we say we are a Christian, we are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lifestyle and our conduct is painting a picture to a watching world. What are they seeing? What are they observing in your life? Illustration. No doubt you have heard of the great, mighty, 
Greek conqueror known as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. You probably studied it in school, maybe elsewhere. But I noted that on one of his campaigns, Alexander received a message that one of his soldiers had been continually and seriously misbehaving. And thereby, he was shedding a bad light on the character of the rest of the Greek soldiers. And what made it worse is that his name was also Alexander. <laughs> and so when the commander heard this, he sent word that he wanted to talk to this unruly soldier in person. He said, bring him in. I want to speak to him in person. So when the young man arrived, Alexander the Great asked him, what is your name? And he said, Alexander, sir. And then looking him straight in the face and speaking very forcefully, he said, soldier, either change your behavior or change your name. <laughs> either change your behavior or change your name. You know, this story has a lesson for each of us. When we call ourselves Christians, we are identifying ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sobering thought. But is your way of life in keeping with that name? Is your way of life in keeping with that name? I am God's temple. I am God's temple. And I believe that understanding that my body is the dwelling place of God, helps me to live more carefully and responsibly. And then lastly this morning, I am God's treasure. I am God's treasure. There is something especially empowering about knowing that you are dearly loved by someone. I hope those of you married ones especially understand this. <laughs> and I hope that you children and all others understand this as well. But there's something especially empowering about knowing that someone dearly loves you. It has a way of causing you to move your focus from the inward to the outward. Think about that. Now... When I was a teenager, I must admit that I was self-conscious about some things in my life, specifically in relation to my face. Okay, I'm just being real honest and open with you this morning, okay? You probably understand. <laughs> well, I'm in your own life. <clears throat> but, you know, I thought I had too many pimples and I thought I had too many moles on my face. And I was conscious about that. It bothered me. I specifically remember as I began dating uh, the girl who is now my dear wife, Kim, I specifically remember realizing that as we got to know each other and we started talking about these type of things in our life, that she didn't even notice those things. And I was appalled 
Because to me, they were such big obstacles. <laughs> How could you get around it, you know? In other words, my view, my focus in life in some areas was so inward about myself, my little problems, the things that I didn't like about myself. And so I just took for granted that others see it the same way. Well, let me give you a little quote here by David Benner in a book that he wrote titled The Gift of Being Yourself. Now, I don't, I don't know everything about this book, and I'm not necessarily endorsing the book or the author, but I found this quote meaningful. He writes, An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to our mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. That's someone whose identity is grounded not in ourself, not in who I am in external ways, not in my looks, not in my business, not in my vehicle, not in all that, but it's a person whose identity is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. When they think of themselves, the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm a person that is deeply loved by God. Did you know that viewing yourself in this way will absolutely change your life? It will change the way you think about yourself. It will change the way you view life. It will change the way you relate to those around you. You see, when you have a poor self-image, it's difficult to relate with confidence and love to those around you because you're really thinking about yourself and I wonder how they think I look and, and how I'm coming across and did I say that right and blah, blah, blah. Just, you know what I'm saying. Too often times, I believe, we tend to view ourselves according to how we feel instead of according to how God sees us. For example, if you have done something that caused you to feel impure or you have done something that caused you to feel dishonest, you may tend to believe that that's how God views you as well, that you're an impure, dishonest little scoundrel. <laughs> That's how I find it sometimes in my life, especially in the past. I just assume that the way I feel is the way God sees me. And let me just say that having this kind of mindset makes life a real struggle. Makes life a real struggle. First of all, it, it will cause you to go about life with a very down-and-out type attitude, with a, with a very inward focus, where, where you're desperately trying to, to please God. You want to make God happy. And, and, and when, you, when you fail, you're like, oh, oh no, how unhappy God must be. Oh, I did it again. And oh, boy, it's, it's that kind of outlook on life. But also... Having this mindset gives you a wrong perception of who God is. God is not a patty-slapping kind of God. No, that's not at all who God is. Now, let me make it clear. 
God is a righteous judge. And God will, God will not tolerate sin in our lives. I understand that. But God is not checking and putting a mark on a paper every time you fail and holding us to that. Nope, oh, you messed up again. Gotcha. No, that's not the God we serve. I am God's treasure. And all throughout Scripture, we find this. I mean, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the Bible is full of the love of God for you and me. His heart just is poured out for mankind. How He loves us. How He longs to have a relationship with us. Let me just give you a few beautiful verses. But... I chose the word treasure partly because it's found in Exodus 19, verse 5, where we read, Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. A treasure. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Isn't that beautiful? God joys over you. God joys over his people with singing. You make a song come to the heart of God. That's, that really doesn't speak about how good we are. It speaks about how good God is, how much he loves us. And then one more, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, and you know this pretty well. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He's made us alive. The rich mercy and love of God. You see, knowing and believing that we are God's treasure, that we are the apple of God's eye, that we are at the center of his affection, knowing and believing that gives us the opportunity to experience God's love in new and fresh ways. It opens us up to, to understand and experience God in ways we have never before. But along with that, it, it allows us to then confidently share the love of God effectively with others. It really does. Because once again, our view isn't inward, but it's outward. We're not consumed with ourselves. Not that we never think about ourselves, but we're not consumed with ourselves. Our goal and desire is how can I be a blessing to others? You see, it flows from God's love through us and then out of us. Now, come to the end of this message. Let me read this quote uh, by John Koblenz. In one of the books he wrote, uh, on, a pat, on, a, on a chapter that had to do with self-image, self-concept, so forth. John Koblenz writes this, The exercise of godly love is one of the best antidotes to poor self-concepts. 
One of the best therapies for twisted feelings about ourselves is the exercise of love. We must start with a renunciation of self and a devoted turning to Christ. Our number one objective must be to have Christ live his life in us. We then give ourselves to loving others. Instead of wallowing in our own troubles and being continually concerned with our needs being met, we learn to focus on meeting the needs of others. Such a love is therapeutic. Love is healing. God's love flowing into us becomes God's love flowing out of us. And in the process, our inner lives are restored. We learn that our worth is not in ourselves, but in Christ. Others come to value us for the one who lives in us. As Christ becomes our life, our self-concepts straighten out. As Christ becomes our life, our self-concepts straighten out. A closing few verses. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. At about 10.05, we started with this passage by a song that we sang. At about 12.05, we're finishing the service in the similar, in the same passage. But we started the service by singing, If ye then with Christ be risen, seek those things above. I'd like to note the first four verses in closing of Colossians chapter 3. Because it puts our attention, it gives us a proper focus for living. We find our identity in Jesus Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And so while the world, dear people, is pursuing their identity in the ever-changing external things, the Christian finds a safe and purposeful and meaningful place in life in the person of Jesus Christ, the unchanging one. That's beautiful. That's true stability in life. May God help us in this area in our life. May God help us to have a perspective that honors him, that glorifies him. We'll call for a song.